Hi, I'm Ian Abernethy and you're listening to Tim Smith on the Kung Fu Podcast. If you're a listener to this podcast, it's safe to say that you have an interest in the modern day practice of the traditional martial arts. Therefore, you may enjoy my own podcast, the imaginatively titled Ian Abernethy Podcast. You can find it in all the usual places and at ianabernethy.com. That's I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y dot com. Welcome to Kung Fu Podcast, where we explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. This is your first time to the program. Welcome. You're the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that put in a great deal of sweat and work into honing their craft. The last two episodes, 196 and 197, laid a framework around traps that we fall into, academics fall into, you know, definitely we fall into uh, general conversations at a seminar or something like that about what is it that we're talking about when we use the word martial art. In this one, we're going to start the trail of where do we go from warrior training to sports training in the Chinese martial arts. You probably already know that all dogs are a direct DNA relative to their predecessor, the gray wolf. Even though the DNA presence shuts the door on arguing this transformation, we must have redefined the dog from the wolf, or some little dogs like a chihuahua would still be called a wolf. I also gave the metaphors kind of like finding a leader in a pile of politicians. We can be confident that throughout history that many of our governmental powerhouses were leaders, right? You know, Colin Powell, Eisenhower, Mandela, Churchill, just to name a few They could be both the warrior and the sage. That is so hard to find today. Most politicians look like chihuahuas, and you can't see the wolf where they had originally began as leaders. Well, the same is also true in martial arts. When did warriors transform to sportsmen? Is it because we started breeding the practice of martial arts for certain dog-like results? There are some major problems you have to be aware of when you start breeding animals for specific qualities, right? Uh, You start to eliminate a lot of their other qualities. And in fact, you also uh, promote more disease and problems in a specific type of breed that they wouldn't normally have. But also, just like in martial arts, there is a problem with those that pursue it. Now, what I mean by that is there's a problem inherent of breeding animals. There's also a problem in the pursuit of making profit to breed those animals. Many unethical people will take those shortcuts and have unscrupulous tactics to turn that dollar. Six million animals every year left homeless. They're still just trying to generate a dollar. My friend Alex Armaza pointed something out not long ago on his Facebook page where he pointed out a guy who went from a first-degree black belt to a fifth-degree black belt in less than just a couple of years. This amazing feat takes many karateka much, much longer to accomplish. So, as we open the doors from warrior training to sports training, we need to be aware there's going to be some problems inherent 
in that. But there's also going to be some problems when we start to open that door and we begin to find folks who are in it just for the pursuit of profit. We've been spending some time in defining the martial arts family of practices. And whether we like it or not, and whether we are a researcher or not, you have to define your martial arts training at some particular time just so that you can have an opportunity to express yourself in the same way that we define canine animals. If you don't do that, then you're going to accept that a little Pekingese is still just like a wolf, even though your eyes and everything about it tells you that it's not. The wolf has survived all the way through into modern times, even with the developing breed of Pekingese and Chihuahuas. Perhaps there is a chance that you will see the wolf in your training today or see clearly how it began transforming from the wolf to what you have today. This article deals with the questions of how Chinese martial arts as part of traditional culture survived into modern times just like the wolf did. The paper focuses on the process of modernization of Chinese martial arts against the background of massive social transformations in China during the 19th century. During this essay, we're also going to analyze different aspects of the self-assertion process of martial arts and point out the consequences of the radical break with the traditional system of martial arts. From Warriors to Sportsmen is the essay, How Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Adapted to Modernity. It was written by Professor Kai Filipiak, who we highlighted in the last episode. In Chinese history and culture, there are various terms for what Eastern folks just blanketly call martial arts. Academics struggle at identifying literature and history in Chinese culture because it is not as neat as we would like for it to be. During the Han Dynasty, 206 to 220 AD, it was called Wu Yi. Martial feats is how it would be as closely Englishly translated. From 501 to 550 AD, it is what we would refer to as traditional Wushu. There are terms like Quan Ban, Goshu, and of course then even more recently, Wushu as you modernly know it today. Even the different times and meanings we're identifying slightly different components of not just skills, but also of culture. Early on, it referred to military operations and skills, then began referring to combative skills that we could be doing today. Uh, it also later would include weapons and performance. Traveling martial arts instructors were also versed in understanding some things about character, as well as medicine, which we see outlined in the traditional Chinese martial manual, Wu Beiji, later evolved into what many folks know as the Bubishi. We're going to want to avoid pigeonholing ourselves right off the bat as we walk through the exercise of warriors to sportsmen. The introduction is titled, Martial Arts as a Chinese Cultural Phenomenon. Although Chinese martial arts are a widely popularized and familiar aspect of the modern global society in which we live, our knowledge of the traditional and even spiritual roots of this practice is still rather limited. Martial arts in traditional China were very much part of rural and spiritual culture. The idea that one can improve his combat skills by means of numerically structured exercises is a perfect example 
of the close relationship of the traditional practice of martial arts within traditional Chinese culture. Well, how do we make sense of the unsensible? And that's a clue for us. To bring order out of chaos, whether it is in your own individual life or trying to understand the time in which we live. And we are living at a pretty chaotic time right now with the whole COVID and all this other stuff flying around. There's a lot of chaos going on. How do you make sense of that? This is part of the reason that if we don't learn from our history, it will repeat itself, and sometimes it does it anyway. You look for patterns inside of a moment. You look for cycles throughout time. You cannot flow with something that you don't understand. Now, you roll that back through time. If you don't understand weather patterns, you're probably not going to make it, whether it's where your house is being built or how you're going to farm or put your livestock, you have to know weather patterns or you're not going to make it. The ancient Chinese were no different. They had to do the things necessary to understand their environment to survive and to make sense of a time before there was ever any running water and electricity. So we have to learn how to make some sense out of chaos. So let's begin with numbering the unordered. Look out across a field of a thousand cattle. Is there a difference in the black, black and white, brown and reddish gray cows? If we blow it off and say no, it's just different color cows, there's no real difference. Different breeds of cows come in different colors just like hens and different breeds produce various kinds of milk. Dairy farmers know this already. They quickly categorize their cows between those that produce high volumes of milk those that don't produce as much, but the milk is much richer in protein, and those that are richer in fat. Hens are no different. Those that lay those nice, big, dark brown eggs come from specific types of hens, and different types of breeds will lay their types of eggs. Categorizing your farm into groups of three, five, or seven would only make sense, unless you want to pigeonhole yourself into one specific thing. Numbers played an important role in the intellectual history of China. They were not only used to fix quantities, but also to establish a relationship between different objects and how to find correlations. The underlying intention of the utilization of numbers as a means of spirituality was an effort to understand the principles of universal order, helping practitioners harmonize with their environment. This correlative thinking produced ideas and concepts of high complexity, which we can also find in traditional martial arts forms. It's not to say that they were always right in 500 BC with their correlations, but we should be able to agree that with the best of what they had, and in most cases they got close enough to keep living on, right? That was the main thing. Do you know enough so that you can survive and your children's children are going to survive down the way and maybe even uh, get more productive and profit somehow as they move forward? And that in itself contributes to why it's still part of a modern-day conversation. Let's take the number five, for example. Traditional Chinese culture the number five has a strong relationship with the ancient idea of the five phases. We know that the five phases are linked into two cycles of generation and conquest. For example, in the generation cycle, wood creates fire and the ashes of the fire create earth and so on. The number five is also related to the five colors, 
the five organs, the five tastes, and so on. The number five became a tool like a pitchfork that could reach out and pull something out meaningful out of a bucket of chaos. Well, the old concept of five phases combined with the two principles of yin and yang were systemized by Zhao Yan during 3 BC. Repeat, 3 BC. So it's been around for a long time. And it not, may not have been necessarily always correct and perhaps used in places it didn't need to be, but there was a reason why, because they were trying to survive and trying to move forward and understand the world uh, much differently. We turn that back on to the martial arts. We see the five phases plays in an integral role. In the famous school of form and mind boxing, Xing Yi Tuan, the five phases are combined with different hand techniques and actually called the elemental hands. Now, Professor Filipiak's example of Xing Yi is something that I'm sharing, but we were taught, and I would tell you the same thing if you're my student, whenever you run across a lot of this mess, don't overanalyze these concepts of conquest or degeneration and the other things. Because when you start applying philosophy where skill is supposed to exist, you're going to have some serious problems. We use it mostly as a way to catalog things to work on. This is also where I was mentioning about the problem that comes along with certain practices. When you start cataloging a practice, you start to leave things out. But there's also the problem with people who begin to profit off the process. Perhaps they could read and write and they wanted a better position. They wanted somehow to get more notoriety by the government. So they weren't as good as the illiterate master, but they could articulate things better and that would give them a better job. And not by being a better practitioner, but a better philosopher and a writer. So when you read through the five phases of Xing Yi, it will give you things like the splitting fist belongs to the metal and it strengthens the lungs and it goes on and on and on. The passage serves to illustrate the characteristic of the Chinese martial arts, its complexity, which contains not only philosophical ideas, but religious notions as well. But it also does embrace traditional Chinese medicine. All those things were interwoven together. Now, if I'm teaching you, I'm going to teach you the same way it was taught to me. The first thing I'm going to tell you is get all of that mess out of your head or you're going to be so blocked up you won't be able to move. I usually recommend just ripping those pages out. Put them over there somewhere where you can look at them 15 years from now. Xing Yi is a magnificent art of power and it's literally built on physics and principles that you can use. Practitioners began putting too much emphasis on the philosophy, making it magical almost. Because some people will get very silly with it and go so far to say as when he throws the fire punch, I'm supposed to do the water punch and all that stuff. In reality, by the time you realize that he's doing the fire punch, you're never going to get it off before he's knocked you on your rear end anyway. Wang Zhanjai, one of my favorite practitioners, we've had a couple of podcasts with him being highlighted in it, spoke about how the practitioner wasn't supposed to learn all these elemental hands as some sort of uh, technique versus technique thing. It was learning to flow like water. It was learning to explode like a fire, to temper your body like steel, etc. The second important characteristic of traditional Chinese martial arts is its multifunctional use as a form of civil self-defense, military combat, competitive sport, mass sport, spirituality, and a type of health care. A key reason for the complexity and multifunctionality of martial arts 
is its widespread use among diverse sectors of Chinese society. The two factors that we just mentioned were shaped by practitioners of different social backgrounds and their various mentalities, customs, and worldviews, as well as the organizational forms that they brought to the martial arts. So the fact that Chinese martial arts survived into modern times and created a worldwide interest is primarily connected to its complexity, multifunctional use, and broad social acceptance. In this respect, it is also very different from other kinds of sports in modern China, such as hockey, football, and polo. In comparison with these sports, martial arts pass through a longer and more continuous process of development. Now, I really would encourage you at this point to go back and listen through the Hit the Mark series about Confucius, the archer. There's a whole compilation on that, and it's really beneficial of understanding how their process of, of training, uh, measuring yourself as a gentleman, and then also sports through archery, uh, the whole part of it, measuring character. And this martial arts sport concept is a little tricky in light of the fact that the Chinese were more and more attracted to modern Western sports. Philippiac states that the use of modern firearms made training in traditional martial arts almost useless, not only for military purposes, but also for the civil self-defense purposes. And I do not agree with that statement. You know, if you go back to Tibetan Kung Fu number 20, which I titled Man Down, it's a very, very dark day in Fayetteville, North Carolina history. I'm working at the Cape Fear Valley Hospital there. We get a call across the hospital intercom. Basically, it's all hands on deck. Everybody, it doesn't come along very often, but when it does, everybody moves to the emergency rooms. And we got inundated with people coming in on stretchers and pickup trucks, ambulances, you name it, because one man decided to go up on a hill and he started shooting all the soldiers down there who were in their shorts and t-shirts doing PT and push-ups and he took out an automatic weapon and went on them. Well, a small group of unarmed men went, flanked him and wrestled. I think one got killed in the process, but they took him down and saved many more lives. There are also other examples of where unarmed people have taken on armed people. And yes, some don't make it, but the objective is met. The martial combative training may not have been perfect. Of course, you're not going to elect, elect to go out there to face someone armed if you're unarmed. But if you have got to go, then you have got to be prepared to make whatever sacrifices are necessary. So I don't agree with this comment that it made traditional martial arts training useless because you have to work on having that sort of commitment to make something go through even when the odds are against you. Philippiac continues by saying that the survival process of martial arts into modern times can be taken as an example of cultural self-assertion in the beginning stages of globalization. These adaptation processes and their consequences are the focus of this entire paper. I will admit that the statement cultural self-assertion in the beginning stages of globalization is a big mouthful. What it sounds like to me is a large group of people were ready to push out the resources that they felt like they had that were valuable at the time that the world place was marketing up. That would be the globalization process. 
Now, if I'm wrong about that, you can email me at kungfupodcast at gmail.com. Now we're going to move into a different section. Martial arts, from the grassroots to its popularization in the city. Unlike other cultures, the practice of martial arts was not the privilege of special groups in Chinese society. All kinds of folks, tenants, craftsmen, merchants, and monks, as well as soldiers, members of nobility, and scholars practiced them. Despite the fact that the Chinese was a patriarchal society, one can also find numerous examples of female fighters skilled in different forms of martial arts. Traditionally, martial arts were a feature primarily of rural society, where the practice was linked with different organizational structures. And the first organizational structure that Philippiac uses as an example is the Baojia system. The Bao character represents to defend, to protect, and to ensure. The Jia character represents ranking. You put those together in the old language, and the Baojia system was introduced by Chancellor Wang Anshi. This was around 1021 to 1086, during the Northern Song Dynasty. The system served to organize the people at a local level for self-defense against robbers, foreign raiders, and rebels. What Professor Philippiak could not tell you in his article due to his space limitations was that if you look further, Wang Anshi was a politician, an economist, and a poet. He pushed for economic and military conforms, and his primary military conforms were to turn some responsibilities back to local militias. You know, like you and me, our neighborhood, train us so we can protect ourselves against, you know, oncoming forces, which in some places here in the United States right now, with the uh, unfunding of police forces, that actually may be something that we have to look back into. Because basically, he laid the framework for us to be trained to keep our crops, villages, children safe from the drifters, warlords, pirates, bandits, and maintain the law. And you move that up to modern, to rioters, as a matter of fact. The idea was to reduce the government's reliance on mercenaries at that time. So let's walk back in time a little bit. You, me, some of the people we train with are part of the leadership of the Baojia. We would be responsible for also going around to collect taxes. That's not a lot of fun. But, you know, we have to talk about a position of power for a few moments, providing protection and collecting taxes. This system, the Baojia system, would continue all the way through the Ming Dynasty. But it wasn't mandatory. The guidelines were there for any official to implement if they wished to deploy it for his part of the country or the province. During the Qing Dynasty, however, the Baojia system expanded throughout China, even up through the 20th century, where on the May 4th movement of 1919, when they boycotted the Japanese products, the students modeled their resistance using the system of Baojia. By 1933, the Japanese used the system, calling it Tanarigumi, in a place called Manchukoko. In this case, the purpose of the system was to monitor and control the Chinese citizens. The government instituted a severe punishment for so-called crimes. Now, make sure you go back and listen to the episode on the native language of the Okinawan martial arts, where the crime was speaking your own native language and it could cost you your head, jackasses. The local training was primarily conducted by the head man. During times, as it was written, quote, 
when little agricultural time was required, the strongmen in the village would be trained in the martial arts. They began with training of simple techniques of defense and attack. Some, if they were exceptional and located near a city, would support the professional military as well, which also meant better pay." End quote. In the military history in Song Liao, Jian, and Shishi Dynasty by Li Shi, he wrote, Wang believes that after Baojia training, it is possible to eliminate recruiting from arrogant ambition. Later, he would also write, Baojia is in various places and is actually limited to maintaining local law and order. Training should occur in the time of slack farming. The martial art, the Baojia system, developed by Wang Anxi around 1055 AD, was not necessarily a system he created of martial arts, but it appears that he laid the platform, the purpose, and the objectives for the martial training, which is what we've been talking about for the last two episodes, defining what your martial arts training is for you at that time, and even though you may not necessarily get agreement from other folks at the uh, same time or even further down the time, you need to know what you're trying to do. And then who was trained, when they were trained, and where they were trained would be all designated at a local level. The second organizational structure that you would have found martial arts training at a rural level would be the Company of Archers. They were a non-governmental organization for self-defense in the countryside. The archer societies called Gongjian Shi in northern Hebei fought against bandits and raiders from the north during the Song Dynasty. And they are a very good example of the type of organizations that we're talking about in the rural area. Stephen Selby, in his work, Chinese Archery, which is an excellent work, describes in detail from the original transcripts the importance of these rural martial artists. It is nearly impossible in my mind to exclude traditional Chinese martial arts and archery. Today, not so much, but historically, as in the Hit the Mark five-part series, it was not just a test of character, it was a test of rank, it was a test for opportunity, and it was a test in concert with your combative abilities along with your sword and hand-to-hand work. The Song Dynasty acknowledged just a few primary combative formations, the Imperial Guard, the Provincial Army, and occasionally a third, the local militia. Two elements of the local militia were the deadly archers, the bowmen, and the company of archers. The bowmen began around 951 AD in the Shangxi. Recruits were provided with produce of a vacant field and support for each man and his horse. They were also called to the front line to fight alongside the provincial armies in emergencies. They had eight ranks and underwent accuracy shooting tests along with the cavalry warfare tests in open ground. As Professor Philippiak states, Shelby also described in detail that we are in the hills and valleys in and around Hebei. Today, this province is massive, wrapping all the way around Beijing in the northwest and bordering Inner Mongolia. Much of the Great Wall is in the Hebei province. In 1093, Su Dongbo, who is known and highly regarded to this very day as a statement, political philosopher, and a calligrapher, wrote a memorial urging the continued support of the Company of Archers. These martial men were provided protection for the local lands at no cost to imperial state. Sung Dobo wrote in the 11th century, quote, Since the peace negotiations at Chongyang 
in the eastern sector of the border divisions at the region north of the river. The communities have of their own accord been uniting into companies of archers. Regardless of family or professional status, each household provides one man, and they themselves select the head, the deputy head, and secretary from among those households who are recognized on the basis either of wealth or military skill. They call these leaders the head and eyes. They carry a bow along with their hoes and rakes, a sword with their bundles of firewoods. They pass in and out of the foothills, and in terms of their diet and their native skills, they are like their enemies." End quote. These men trained hard and were formidable to the enemies of the time. They had their own disciplinary system, reward and punishment system. They created their own patrols and patterns to monitor this huge territory. They also utilized an ancient neighborhood watch system. You know, light a flash, send the pigeon, whatever it may have been. They were particularly on the watch for these sort of vagrants, you know, people that just look sketchy. What would be described kind of like an Old West gang member. These forest gangs would ambush, rob, and rape as they worked their way through. The company of archers would patrol the grounds to which their ancestors and their families lived and died. These old-timey forest gang members were called brigands. Sue writes, If any of the northern brigands sneak through into their territory, or a powerful robber band is not apprehended, all of those who should have known about it are severely punished. In case of emergencies, they beat drums and they could put a thousand men at the scene in no time at all. In weapons, armor, saddlery, and horses, they are equal to the enemy. Their men do battle among their own loved ones and upon the graves of their ancestors, and the enemy fear them greatly. The company of archers are really a vital resource in border defense. They must not be allowed to degenerate." End quote. Amazingly, this company of the 11th century civilian martial art protectors organized their training with these bullet points. They selected a temple to meet and strategize practice. Then they would select open ground to train in. They would self-elect a master skilled archer as the head, combat skilled as deputies, and someone who could read and write as a secretary. A skilled warrior who came from a poor family may have his gear purchased by a wealthier supporter or classmate. They had library studies as well as combat practice. You had to pass tests. For example, there was a three-foot post placed in the ground. You had to walk out 40 paces and hit it with every shot, 10 for 10, to make it into the group. The Bowman and Company of Archers are the early 1100s, and they are the second example of martial arts intertwined with the rural society and their highly structured organizational training. The third path that you would have found Chinese martial arts in the rural community is through enlisted mercenaries. There are many references throughout Kung Fu Podcast 
to mercenaries that were participating in martial arts. There's also General Chi Chi Kung and the entire episode of Kung Fu Podcast number 64. But this third example of rural powerful connections to the Chinese martial arts is emphasized during the 15th century, where local officials began to drill mercenaries whom they had enlisted from the villages. The mercenaries from Yi Wu, a county in Shenzhen province, were known for their fighting skills. And General Chi Chi Kong, who lived from 1528 through 1587, was a famous Ming general who usually recruited them for his army. According to some sources, the famous general recruited miners and farmers from Yi Wu because they were hardworking. It appears that that was the local stereotype, that these were hardworking folks. And General Chi did recruit from the area, primarily because the area was known to have both peasants and educated men who were looking for rapid advancements in the Ming army. We know that back in the 16th, 15th centuries and so, military success was equivalent to more money. Professor James Lewis of Oxford University and part of the Faculty of Oriental Studies wrote in his work, East Asian War, 1592-1598, through 1598, that General Chi recruited 3,000 Yiwu men and uniquely trained them. His strategies and training led to some swift victories. This is when General Chi documented his famous training manual that we've actually shared parts over here throughout Kung Fu Podcast. This is considered the first written documentation of traditional Chinese martial arts training. The men he was training were preparing to root out some of the vicious pirates of the South and repel the brutal Mongols of the North. These guys were greatly from Yi Wu. General Chi used martial arts instructors in training to train those rural countrymen into a group of some of the most versatile soldiers that stories are still written about to this day. The fourth area that you'd have found the connection between Chinese martial arts and the rural community is in family fighters. Apart from the organizations that we just spoke about, martial arts was also practiced in clans, and family passed them down from generation to generation. For example, the Yang clan was famous for their spear technique. This wasn't the same Yang clan that we know of for Tai Chi Chuan, because that was the Qin style, who also practiced throughout their family, and it got passed down, and it began with Qin Wan Ting, who lived from 1600 to 1680. The Qin school still exists to this very day. Friend of the program David Gaffney wrote an article titled, The Role of Weapons in Qin Tai Chi Chuan. You can find David's website at Qin Tai Chi Quan GB. Now, on this program, I have mentioned several times the connection between General Chi, who we just spoke about from the 1500s, and Qin Wan Ting, the usually recognized head-slash-creator of Tai Chi. David points out that Tang Hao, who was thoroughly referenced in Kung Fu Podcast number 34, was one of the early historians that demonstrated the evidence that General Chi and his training manual had a, quote, profound influence on Chen Wanting's creation of Tai Chi Tuan, end quote. Quite often when I'm teaching Tai Chi from the basis of principles that drive that art, I like to use short weapons. In fact, I just released a little video clips of some practices over the week uh, and the weekend that we were using different types of tools and we apply those to our Tai Chi. Because first, according to most of the older training texts, weapons in theory 
always came first in your training. Then hand techniques. As I tell the students, you know, when you had to go out to battle, you didn't throw down your stick so you could fight with your hands. But if you don't practice using things in your hands, you don't understand the art the same way. This was true for American soldiers even during the war. You use your rifle as the mechanism for close quarter combat until you can learn something better. Then techniques like straight punches, hooks, and uppercuts come right out of that work from close quarter combat with your rifle. Besides, when you think about it historically, how many stories have I shared with you that was about hmm, the bare-handed bandits of the North or the pugilistic pirates of the South? I don't have any. Those were only in the old crap I lost my weapon stories. You learn to use weapons first, hoes, harvesting tools, and pretty much anything you can get your hands on so that you could go to battle and protect yourself against predators and bandits that would come to take your family or your flock. So learning to practice with weapons has got to be practiced, promise you. It changes the depth of your understanding of an art when you use a tool to implement that art. The young family spear that uh, Professor Filipiak was referencing was, again, not the young Tai Chi Chuan family. This was a much earlier young family of the Song Dynasty, actually even a predecessor of General Chi, because he referenced them in his training manual. According to some, this direct reference is to the famous Song Dynasty female warrior who avenged her family's members during the northern battles. That was at approximately 960 through 275 AD. There's a lot of history, legends, and lore, and the generals of the young family are worthy of a podcast all on their own. However, according to Clifford Gives, who successfully defended his master's thesis at the University of Arizona, in his work of translation, he didn't necessarily think it was referring to women because he states that General Qigong Manual says, quote, Mr. Yang Spear Arts, together with his open hand, fist, and quarterstaff skills, are all famous to this very present day. I'm looking forward to putting together a full audiobook of that translation for you. I believe it'd be well worth it. The fifth area that you're going to find Chinese martial arts embedded into the rural community is new organizations. We just got out of the 15th, 16th centuries. Now we're in the 18th and 19th centuries. And during the 1700s and 1800s, a lot of things were changing. Many sects and so-called secret societies were being created during this Ming-Qing transition. They had different backgrounds and pursued different combinations of political, economical, and religious goals. Most of these organizations used martial arts to protect their members. They also used martial arts performances to attract people to join those very societies, the Heaven and Earth Society, the Eight Trigram Sect, and the Big Sword Society, Da Dao Hu, are famous examples of such organizations. In fact, there's a whole compilation of Kung Fu podcasts that are dedicated to the secret societies of Chinese martial arts. So here we are, we have all these areas that we can find Chinese martial arts embedded in the rural community. And in our modern day thinking, if you can find it in the countryside, most likely you can find it in the city, right? You may naturally think that if the martial arts were flourishing in the development in these rural areas, that it had to be rocking in the urban areas, right? However, Professor Filipiak states, quote, 
there is no real basis for comparison between the development of martial arts at the rural and urban levels until the beginning of modern China. The main reason for this is that ancient China was an agricultural society where the countryside and the land were traditionally of greater importance. Fertile land was an important precondition for prosperity, and therefore land was also an object for investment. Villages formed the basis of traditional Chinese society. Moreover, there was an ideological orientation to the countryside because of the fact that the family and the tombs of the ancestors were located there. In this sense, the Chinese individual was involved in a social network connected with the countryside. And that is why cities in China for more than 2,000 years were only second in importance to the countryside, end quote. Something else that was interesting to me is Philippiak points out that most of the Chinese cities were not, quote, created. Most Chinese cities were founded by military and civil officials to protect and manage the countryside around them. So the cities were actually coming up after the development of a countryside and they were just trying to keep those places safe. There are 12th century sources that offer information about the practice of martial arts in special amusement districts. The artists perform routines, forms, and show fights. Theater and opera groups also used martial arts to attract people. However, compared to the countryside, the popularity of martial arts in the cities was only marginal. So let's look into the new breed. The situation changed at the end of the Qilong period, which was 1736 through 1795, with the beginning of the political and economical decline of China. It became obvious that the farming and land production was not going to be enough to nourish the people of this huge population. There was a population boom compounded with the lack of fertile soil and the inability to intensify the production caused many problems for China. At the same time, Western powers forced the imperial government to open for international trade and turned it into an object of colonialism. China was pushed into modernity and you will find that people moved from the countryside to the cities looking for better lives or jobs. Well, just like Agent for Action, Professor Ben Juckins explained, sometimes, instead of defining what martial arts are, sometimes it is helpful to define where martial arts are. In this example, if you follow the economy, you can find martial arts and it's traveled across time. Martial artists also moved to the cities looking for new ways to make a living. They found different types of employment. Even in the cities, there was also a need for self-defense, sports, entertainment, and health care. As a martial artist, you could have addressed those needs. Excellent fighters could always use their professional abilities to find good jobs. Two well-known people are good examples. Young Luchan, 1799 through 1872, the founder of the Yang style of Tai Chi Chuan, is a good example of somebody who used his martial skills to make a better living. Yang Luchan came from a poor family in the Hebei province. Later, he goes on to the Qin village in Henan, where he works and picks up Tai Chi skills. 
Later, he returns to his home to work as a professional teacher of martial arts. Then, when he was 40 years old, just like we were talking about, he moves to Beijing. He moves to the city, where he taught members of the imperial family and worked as an instructor of martial arts in the Qing army. There are other popular examples, such as Sun Lutang, and you can learn about his journey from the village countryside through child abuse to education and then later teaching in the city. And there's a full compilation, I believe it's a four or five part series set up just strictly for Sun Lutang. Which reminds me, we mentioned organizations as part of the places that you could find martial artists. Well, as this martial arts breed was moving from the countryside to the cities, meeting these new job needs, new types of organizations were also being created. Most of these new organizations were founded in the big cities, such as Beijing, Tianjin, and Shanghai during the 1920s and 30s. These new urban organizations had very different goals than their rural counterparts. Let's peek into the motivations of their members by having a look at the names of the different organizations. We can find five new breed organizations that were created for different reasons as the martial arts moved from the rural countryside into the cities. Let's look at quick overview of the type of organization that it is and the when and where this organization was created. One category of these new breed of organizations was the Organizations for the Cultivation and Research of Martial Arts. For example, there was one organization underneath this new genre named the Center for the Study of Martial Arts, formed in Shanghai in 1918. Then there was the Center for Martial Arts Research, formed in Shanghai in 1923. And then there was the Society for Research of Chinese Martial Arts, formed in Beijing 1922. The second category of these new organizations in these urban developments was the organizations that were created for the athletic practice of martial arts. These were, for example, named the first public sports field in Department of National Martial Arts in Shanghai, formed in 1918. Then there was the Center for Athletic Practice of Martial Arts of Beijing, also formed in 1918. Category three of these new breed of martial arts organizations was the organizations for the promotion of martial arts and moral concepts. These were, for example, the Center for the Research of Morals and Martial Arts in Tianjin, formed in 1923. And then there was the Center for the Research of Justice in Martial Arts, formed in Beijing, 1932. The fourth type of organization were the organizations for the promotion of particular styles of martial arts. Of course, we have to have those. Those are still popular today, right? My Tai Chi is better than your Bakwa, or your, my Shotokan is better than your Kempo, whatever it might be, right? So we have to promote our particular styles. This has been going on for a long time but not as long as you might initially think, right? We're talking about the late 1918s through the 19, maybe mid-20s. We had the Association of the Wu Dong Tai Chi Tuan, formed in Shanghai in 1926. Then we had the Beijing Center for the Shaolin Five Tiger Style. And then there was also the Association for the Research of Praying Mantis Martial Arts, Shanghai 1926. Then the fifth and last genre of these new breed of organizations that were erupting during this movement from the countryside of traditional martial arts to the new urban manifestations of martial arts was the organizations that were created for martial arts within a national background, the state's 
narrative. We had the Association of New Chinese Martial Arts Forms, which was uh, made in 1923, Beijing. Then there was also the Association for Using Martial Arts to Strengthen China, Beijing, 1923. Many of these new breed organizations were created between 1918 and 1930 and attempted to extend their influence well beyond their original township. For example, the largest organization of martial arts in Shanghai, the Sports Association for Perfect Martial Arts, later created a nationwide network of martial arts centers, offered courses, and organized large martial arts shows. Let's review what we've covered here in this first section as we watched traditional Chinese martial arts in the rural components and the when, where, and why it began to move to the new urban components and how that evolved. And, you know, we covered how do you make sense of the insensible, where we were looking at the numbers and how that affected everything that they did to try to make in some sense of the chaos around them. How the traditional Chinese martial arts was like a Swiss knife. It covered a lot of different things. We looked at why it was so important in the rural communities. For example, having the Baojia system, because you were the police officers, you were the protectors of that area. Uh, we looked at family fighters, as well as this movement from the countryside to the cities and how that gave this new breed of organizations from the 1918 to about 1930 and what the mission was of those new organizations. We're gonna learn a lot more in the second section of the emphasis changing from warrior training to sportsman training. Get in your practice today. Make sure you're following your goals and your objectives. And I'm looking forward to talking with you again real soon. Mm -hmm.